The phase three Tanai and Lucerne trials, which assess the safety and efficacy of ferisimab for wet AMD therapy, have wrapped up. What did the researchers learn? I'm Scott Kriswanis, that's Rebecca Hepp, and this is New Retina Radio from Retina Today and Bryn Mawr Communications. New Retina Radio spoke with Dr. Arshad Kanani about his ARVO presentation on the Tanaya and Lucerne trials. We also spoke with Dr. David Lally, whose ARVO presentation adds new data to the great fluid debates in patients with wet AMD. Stick with us to learn what he and his team found. Extending treatment intervals in wet AMD therapy could lead to greater compliance, reduced treatment burden, and real-world outcomes that more closely align with those found in clinical trials. Will ferisimab be one of the keys to unlocking longer treatment intervals? To find out, we invited Dr. Arshad Kanani to share details from his 2021 ARVO lecture on the Phase 3 Tanaya and Lucerne trials. Dr. Kanani is a managing partner and director of clinical research at Sierra Eye Associates in Reno, Nevada. He is also a clinical associate professor at the University of Nevada, Reno School of Medicine. Dr. Kanani, thank you for joining us. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. We've heard about ferisimab a few times on New Retina Radio, but we want the audience to have a refresher on the molecule before we go into the trials themselves. Can you catch us up? Absolutely. So Scott and Rebecca, uh, ferisimab is a bispecific antibody that targets VEGFA as well as ANG2. And, and basically, it's, it's a molecule with two targets just in one molecule. And NH2 levels are elevated in addition to VEGFA levels in patients with retinal diseases, including neovascular AMD. And we know that uh, from preclinical data that uh, blocking NH2 can decrease uh, leakage, decrease inflammation, parasite loss, and stabilize uh, blood vessels. So I think it's exciting to have a drug that can block VEGFA, which is a known target, and also an additional mechanism of action of this drug that can help our patients uh, with, uh, with neovascular AMD. And then the FC portion has been designed to reduce uh, systemic exposure as well as inflammation. The phase three Tanaya and Lucerne trials examined the safety and efficacy of ferisimab in patients with wet AMD. How were the studies conducted? So these are global randomized double mask phase three trials that included patients with the naive neovascular AMD, so not previously treated. They had to be over 50 years of age and visual acuity was between 2032 and 2320. Uh, they could have uh, either subfovial, juxtafovial, or extrafovial CNV as long as uh, the component uh, included the center. So if you had fluid on OCT or you had leakage that extended into the fovea, these patients were um, included in the trials. And, and what happened was patients were randomized one-to-one to either receive frisimab, a six milligram, and in that arm patient received actually four loading doses followed by disease activity at week 20 or week 24. And, and the disease activity included vision, OCT, as well as investigator discretion, and uh, of course, the dilated exam. So let's say a patient had disease activity at week 20, they were assigned to the every eight-week treatment interval. If they had no disease activity at week 20, then they were not given an injection, and disease activity was repeated at week 24. And if they had disease activity at that time, they went into the every 12-week 
treatment interval. And then if they had no disease activity at either of those time points, they stayed in the Q16 week treatment interval. So basically you have three different groups or swim lanes for fresimab every eight weeks, every 12 weeks, and every 16 weeks. And this was compared to on-label aflibercept, which is uh, three monthly loading doses followed by every eight um, week treatment. Uh, each arm had about 330 patients and um, majority of these patients or 90% finished the first year. And the primary endpoint was mean change in BCVA from baseline to an average BCVA over week 40, 44, and 48. And that was done because you don't want to prioritize one arm because patients are getting injections at different time points. So it was actually the average that was looked at in these trials. Did patients in the frisimab arm enter the aflibercept arm if disease activity was present? No, so they actually stayed in the frisimab arm. So disease activity was only done at week 20 and week 24. And based on that disease activity, they were assigned to the specific frisimab arm. Once they are in one arm, there was no chance for them to move to a different arm or to receive rescue treatment. So once you're in the swim lane, you stayed in the swim lane till the end of the study. Can you give us the top level breakdown of the data at the primary endpoint? Of course, the, the studies met the primary endpoint where patients uh, received uh, who received fresimab up to Q16 weeks, the visual acuity uh, gains were non-inferior to, to a flibercept every eight weeks. So, so patient gained vision on average about five to six letters in, in both arms and similar proportion of patients gained 15 letters or more in both the arms. But the exciting news here is the durability. So can additional uh, MOA blocking ends too lead to greater durability? And we saw that in the phase two, phase two stairway study where we saw uh, comparable visual acuity outcomes in patients who were treated Q12 weeks or Q16 weeks with frisimab compared to monthly ranubizumab. So here we're actually seeing uh, durability at week 48, where 45% of patients in frisimab group were actually on every 16 weeks dosing. I mean, just to put in perspective, that's every four month injection. So that significantly decreases the treatment burden. And of course, 80% or eight out of 10 patients that are in the frisimab group actually were on Q12 weeks or higher. So 80% of patients are gonna go every three months or longer and 45% are on every four months, and only 20% of patients needed every eight-week treatment, which is the standard of care with a flibercep. So, so the durability, I think, is very exciting here, where we saw much greater durability with frisimab compared to a flibercept. And the median number of injections in the frisimab arm were six, and a flibercep uh, was eight. So also, with a decreased number of injection, which of course speaks to the durability of this drug. And did the anatomic data look similar? Yes, that's a very good question, Rebecca, because we wanna make sure that we are seeing similar uh, reduction in, in CST in both groups, because you, know, you have 80% of patients in, in one group going 12 weeks or longer. And the good news is that the reductions were similar among both groups. And, and, and this is my personal observation that, you know, of course we see fluctuations in CST uh, in trials because, you know, it, it's a disease where every patient 
is different. But when I look at the fluctuations in a flibercept versus fericimab, it, it appears that there's less fluctuation in CST in patients who were treated with fericimab. Let's shift topics to safety for a moment. How did the patients fare? Safety is uh, super important. With any new agent that comes in to the market, the safety has to be comparable. Of course, efficacy and durability, uh, having that is great, but we need to make sure that the safety is comparable. And safety in these large global phase three trial was actually very comparable among uh, aflibercept treated patients compared to frisimab. Uh, you know, only one to 2% of patients in either arm of both trials showed uh, serious ocular adverse events. IOI events were approximately 2% of patients in frisimab group and 1.2% in the aflibercept groups. And so it appears to me as a clinician that's comparable. So I also look at kind of inflammation patients had, you know, of course you can have differences in patients uh, in terms of how severe the inflammation was. The good news here is that there were no cases of uh, retinal vasculitis or retinal artery occlusions that were seen uh, in these trials. And we know from other trials that those events that are rare, if they happen, that can lead to irreversible vision loss. So for now, uh, you know, the safety looks really comparable and these are all investigator reported outcomes and seeing that there were no cases of retinal vasculitis or retinal artery occlu occlusion is reassuring. Tanai and Lucerne are two-year studies. What's on the horizon? That is a great question because we need to know the value of blocking ANGE2 in the patients with neovascular AMD. We need long-term data to understand it better because we have preclinical data showing it can, uh, you know, decrease fibrosis, you know, cutting inflammation. What does that mean long-term? So I'm actually super excited to look at the second-year data and, and, and to see what that shows in terms of additional MOA, how these patients uh, differ. In the second-year, patients are going to be treated with the personalized treatment interval, which is, uh, which is a different way to treat the patient based on specific patient needs, more like what we do in the real world. And then after the second-year, Patients roll over into the Avonal X study, which is another two years uh, uh, of, of data. So I think for a new mechanism of action, it's crucial for us to see how these patients fare long-term. And it may be that we may actually see more differences in second, third, or fourth year in patients uh, treated with frisimab that we see in the first year. Arshad, I'm curious, you conducted this study or these two studies in the middle of a pandemic. Did that affect the study protocol? Well, you know, initially when the pandemic started, Scott, you know, the concern was our patients are going to come in uh, for their study treatments and are they going to come in for their appointments? And of course, we as a site and all the sites around the world, they actually really catered to these patients. They did so many different things to keep patients and the staff safe. But of course, there were some patients with missed visits, but all, not all missed visits resulted in mistreatment. And near the time of the primary endpoint, 16 to 20% of patients missed a visit in the trial, resulting in 9% of Tenaya patients and 7% of Lucerne patients missing a treatment near the primary endpoint. But, you know, the, the study stats, people uh, looked at this in different kind of analysis, doing sensitivity analysis and taking this into the account. And the good news is that the data that we have seen 
no matter how you run the analysis is consistent with the primary data that that I presented. So, so yes, there were some misvisits, but really it didn't Im impact uh, the, the data for, for these trials, which is great, which speaks volumes for the patients who participated in these trials, their commitment to, to the trials, as well as the physicians who were running these trials, how they took precautions, and of course the staff that is crucial for us. So yeah, big thank you to all the patients, investigators, and site staff for really going beyond and, and to really help these patients and, and to us for us to generate good data. You just hit us with a wall of data. Tell me what the upshot is. What does this mean for patients and for the physicians who treat them? So listen, Scott, and a patient comes and sees me and I tell them that, hey, we have a treatment, you know, current treatments, you get three loading injection and you can go anywhere from four to eight, maybe 12 weeks in a subset of patients, but this is a lifetime disease. Uh, their, their question is, how, what, what is the future looking like and how can you decrease the number of visits? I mean, I love seeing you, but I don't want to wait here for three or four hours. I don't want to bring my family members with me taking the time off and my eyes blurry for 24 hours. So I think we all know very well that decreasing treatment burden is a big, big unmet need in neovascular AMD. And here with Frisimab, uh, you know, 45% of patients are, are on every four month dosing. 80%, eight out of 10 patients are on every three month or longer dosing interval. I think this is really good news for patients and physicians. And to point uh, that Rebecca mentioned earlier, can decreasing the treatment burden for these patients, can we maintain long-term visual outcomes that we don't see in real world because vision starts to drop off after the first two or three years because of under treatment. So the hope is that Frisimab, if FDA approved, with better durability than current standard of care and comparable efficacy will be a great tool in our toolbox to help our patients with neovascular AMD in the future. Dr. Kanani, great talking to you. Always a pleasure talking to you, Scott and Rebecca. Anyone following retina since the dawn of the anti-VEGF age knows that the great fluid debates are part of the discourse of wet AMD therapy. Go to any meeting, big or small, and you're likely to hear a pair of doctors arguing, in a friendly manner, of course, whether or not fluid ought to be completely resolved in patients undergoing wet AMD therapy. A new piece of evidence enters the discussion today in the form of an ARVO presentation by Dr. David Lally. Dr. Lally is a vitreoretinal surgeon with New England Retina Consultants in Springfield, Massachusetts. Hi, Dr. Lally. Thanks for joining us. Oh, thank you, Scott and Rebecca. It's a pleasure to be on the podcast with you today. Can you start us off by telling us what you and your colleagues were looking for with the study? Yeah, sure. So upon the advent of OCT imaging, we, for the first time, were able to directly observe these patterns of retinal fluid in neovascular AMD. And we initially thought that any fluid in the retina must be bad for vision, and that our goal should be to eliminate as much of the fluid as possible with anti-VEGF therapy, regardless of the location or pattern of the fluid. This initial attitude towards the presence of fluid was not surprising because before the arrival of OCT, the retina specialist's hallmark observation on clinical exam in this disease was that of exudation with macular thickening, and that's association with reduced vision. And over time, we've accumulated robust clinical data to support this assumption. So generally speaking, the presence of fluid 
in neovascular AMD is bad for vision, and our goal should be to resolve the fluid with anti-VEGF therapy. However, there are many patterns and locations of fluid, and there may be certain cohorts of eyes in which their pattern of fluid is protective to their vision, and resolving that fluid with anti-VEGF therapy may not be in the best interest of that individual patient. I will say anecdotally, I've observed in my clinic a small subset of patients in which the resolution of the subretinal fluid is accompanied by a drop in the Snell and vision on the eye chart, and the patient subjectively will complain that their vision is worse. So therefore, the goal of this post hoc study of the Harvard trial was to determine if there's some subset of patients in whom subretinal fluid resolution was linked with a deleterious effect on vision. Before we dig into the finer points of your findings, can you refresh us on the details of the Harbor trial? Yeah, absolutely. So the Harbor trial enrolled treatment-naive patients with wet age-related macular degeneration with active subfovial choroidal neovascularization. All patients received ranibizumab, and they were randomly assigned to receive either 0.5 milligrams or 2 milligram doses. The treatment regimens were randomly assigned to either monthly therapy or PRN therapy after three monthly loading doses, making a total of four treatment cohorts. It was also the first large randomized anti-VEGF trial for wet AMD to incorporate spectral domain OCT imaging as opposed to the previous time domain imaging from the previous trials. PRN therapy is a judgment call by the clinician, but for the purposes of Harbor, it needed to be standardized. So what clinical characteristics would trigger therapy in the PRN groups? Yeah, for patients in the PRN group, therapy was administered if there was a greater than or equal to five-letter loss of vision since the most recent visit, or if there was any evidence of disease activity on the spectral domain OCT image defined as the presence of either subretinal fluid, intraretinal fluid, or subretinal pigment epithelial fluid. The Harbor data set's been around for a long time. The study was published in the mid-2010s. Were you able to rely on any other post hoc analyses when you started your study? Yeah, so the, yeah, the Harbor data set, it's been around for a while now, but it, it really continues to be an important data set in our field because it's a, it has a robust number of patients with both the monthly and the PRN dosing arms and it's combined with spectral domain OCT imaging. So we likely will never have another anti-VEGF trial with monthly and PRN dosing, as the newer therapies have trial designs aiming for longer dosing intervals. So Harbor continues to be an excellent resource for understanding the role of vision and fluid in this disease. Dr. Nancy Holkamp recently reported a Harbor post-hoc analysis that found that less than 30% of eyes had residual subretinal or intraretinal fluid at the month 12 and 24 time points. And interestingly in that study, eyes that had only subretinal fluid at month 12 and month 24 had actually better visual acuity gains than the other three groups uh, in that analysis. And those other three groups included eyes with both subretinal fluid and intraretinal fluid, uh, a group with neither subretinal fluid or intraretinal fluid, and eyes with only intraretinal fluid. You know, this was a post hoc analysis and these results should be interpreted with caution. Nevertheless, it provided an interesting signal that the presence of subretinal fluid only at month 12 and 24 may actually be good for visual acuity at those time points. Let's circle back to your study. Which of the Harbor patients qualified for review? Yeah, so our analysis included patients with subretinal fluid at baseline 
and experienced resolution of the subretinal fluid at some time point during the trial. If the patient also had intraretinal fluid at baseline, then the intraretinal fluid was required to resolve at least one month prior to the subretinal fluid resolving to be included. And how are you calculating visual change in this study? Yeah, we compared the best corrected visual acuity the month before subretinal fluid resolution to the vision the month of subretinal fluid resolution detection. And some patients uh, gained letters when subretinal fluid resolved and others lost vision. Some patients simply maintained vision. So patients were considered in our analysis to have loss of vision if they showed a loss of four or more ETDRS letters at the time of SRF resolution. Otherwise, they were considered to be in the gainers slash maintainers group. And then we compared those who lost vision to those who gained uh, or maintained vision. Outcomes were then assessed at month uh, 12 and 24 in those patients who did not experience any subretinal fluid recurrence after the SRF was first detected to have resolved. Okay, then we have two groups, the uh, vision losers and then the gainers slash maintainers. What can you tell us about them? Yeah, so we looked at their baseline characteristics uh, between these groups and we did not identify any significant differences. But our take home uh, data point was that 11% of our cohort experienced a drop of four or more letters at the time of SRF resolution. And these eyes were classified as vision losers. These eyes lost a mean of nine letters at the time of the SRF resolution. On the other hand, that means that 89% of the patients either gained or maintained their vision at the time of subretinal fluid resolution. And they gained on average a mean of 6.3 letters. So the majority of eyes had a meaningful mean six letter gain when the SRF resolved, but approximately one out of 10 patients lost a mean nine letters when the subretinal fluid resolved. And how did those two populations pan out when you checked in at months 12 and 24? Yeah, so to, to remind the audience when discussing the month 12 and 24 outcomes, we're only analyzing patients who went dry, they had subretinal fluid resolution, and then they stayed dry for the remainder of the trial. Among the group that lost vision after going dry, their best corrected visual acuity gains from baseline were negligible, only about 1.8 letters at month 12 and 0.5 letters at month 24. On the other hand, patients who gained or maintained their vision after going dry fared much better, with mean visual acuity gains of around 13 letters at month 12 and 24 time points compared to their baseline. This is all fascinating, but how does it impact the clinical approach to wet AMD therapy with ranibizumab? What are the take-home points here? Yeah, I think the take-home of this analysis is that neovascular AMD, it's a heterogeneous disease. There's many patterns of fluid, many patterns of responses that we see to our anti-VEGF therapy, and we should be moving towards individualized treatment regimens for these specific disease patterns instead of a one-size-fits-all treatment paradigm. In our study, the majority of eyes did gain or maintain vision at the time of SRF resolution. However, a not insignificant percentage of patients, in our study it was 11% or about one out of 10 patients, showed a drop in vision at the time of SRF resolution. And these eyes fared worse at month 12 and 24 in terms of letters gained from baseline. So 
you know, further work is needed to identify those characteristics of these eyes that lose vision at the time of SRF resolution so that we can try and understand whether we should not be treating these eyes with anti-VEGF therapy to total dryness. But still, I do want to emphasize that the benefit of ranibizumab therapy was observed strongly in our study in these patients. And I do recommend that uh, retinal specialists continue treating uh, with current treatment guidelines until additional analyses can be presented. Dr. Lally, thanks again for coming on the show and sharing your data. Yeah, thank you very much and have a great day. And that's it for this episode of New Retina Radio. If you like what you heard, leave us a review on your podcast platform of choice. And of course, subscribe. If you're in a podcast app, you probably already know how to do that. If you're listening on itube.net, use the little subscribe buttons at the top. See you next time.